This week at Hope Point. We don't sing songs, rah-rah songs about how strong we are, that we're going to make it through the hard times. We sing songs about a Redeemer who loved us at our worst and weakest. Nothing thrills the Christian's heart like being able to express their gratitude to God by saying thank you in a song. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, follow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen now as Richard speaks to us from God's Holy Word. Well, um, happy anniversary, Hope Point, because today marks our one-year anniversary in the book of Revelation. We started mid-November of, of last year, and I hope, I know it's been mentally challenging for you like nothing else. I, I hope it has even more so been refreshing for your hearts. I was talking with a man, he doesn't go to our church, so I can totally pick on him, a few weeks ago, and he said, why would you spend a year, and that's just sort of you know, two-thirds of the way through, why would you spend a year taking your people through a book of the Bible that is notoriously difficult to understand. And I really thought to myself when he asked that question, how arrogant of a question. That because something is hard, we discard it. What other book of the Bible would you say? Oh, well, I'm not going to study the book of Matthew because Jesus' parables are confusing I'm not going to study the book of Jeremiah because it's 52 chapters of him preaching judgment, and that might be a downer. What the man was really saying and what many people say when they look at the book of Revelation is, I'm not studying the book because God was not at his best when he did Revelation. Because if he were at his best, we could understand it more. So I think it's arrogant to say the book should be chunked because it's hard the second reason I thought it was an arrogant question is because of the promise that begins the book. Blessed is the one, Revelation 1-3, who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written because the time is near. When I read that chapter or that verse a year ago, last November, I told the Lord, you had me at the word blessed. No other book of the Bible gets a specific blessing like Revelation does. So what a tragedy it would be to, to not study the book. I really concluded that discussion with that guy by saying, if Revelation is difficult, and it is very difficult for me, I've never been challenged like this in my life. In my 30 or five years of teaching, that doesn't mean that I should pursue it less. It means that I should be more dedicated to difficult devotion mentally than ever. I can't imagine approaching something well because it's harder. That means there's less motivation to stay. I can't imagine whether it's Clemson or Georgia or Tennessee or Ohio State or Michigan that when the coach says, well, it's going to be more difficult this year to win a national championship, then the team says, well, then I'm out. But that's the way a modern church is. The more difficult something is, the more there is an inclination not to stay in, in the game. So I've tried to dedicate my mind more than ever, and you've done well too. And I hope that today you would do that again as we look again at the first five verses of Revelation 14. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb. That's Jesus in the book. 
standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They followed the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths and they are, they are blameless. As we've noted when we've read the book of Revelation before, there are two primary overarching truths. It's written to suffering believers. And in the 22 chapters, there are two primary truths that give you hope. Number one is God is control over all things, over all space, over all time, over all people and all powers. God is in control and he even makes evil work for his good purposes. That's why we're encouraged by the book. Evil things happen, God makes them to serve his good purposes. The second thing we're encouraged about in the book of Revelation is that God's purposes cannot be stopped in your life because of this evil. He knows how to get his people home. So whether you get home by way of accident, you get home by way of disease, or you get home by way of martyrdom, God knows how to get his people home. And this is what excites us about the first verse of Revelation, it is a picture of God's people at home. It's called Mount Zion, but that's just a code word for heaven. And we said that, you know, when the Jews finally conquered Palestine, they conquered a bit of land where there was a fortress called Zion. And from that point on, they so loved the concept of Zion being a fort on a hill, they referred to the, the city to which they were looking, where they would live forever, as Mount Zion. And so how tender this is when you look at, you know, Mount, you got Mount Zion here and on Zion, you have the lamb, which is Jesus. And he's standing there with his father, I mean, we see this baby dedication today and we see fathers holding children. And here we have God the Father with his son, Jesus the Lamb who was slain so that the 144,000 who represent the church through the ages could live in the city of God on Zion. So we love Revelation 14 because it is a picture of the church. They got home. Zion was so important to God that even a thousand years before Jesus was ever born, God started referring to Mount Zion as the place where Jesus would bring his people. When you read the book of Psalms, most of the time you read them like I do because they comfort suffering people. But ever so often you read a Psalm and go, oops, that's not about me. That's bigger than me. And we call those messianic Psalms because they're about Jesus who is to come. One of those is Psalm 2. I have installed my king on Zion. 
There it is. The city of God to come is even a thousand years before Jesus referred to as Zion because it's a fortress that can never be taken down. My holy mountain, you are my son. This is God talking, the father talking to the lamb on Zion. You are my son. Today I've become your father. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance. So because of the successful mission of Jesus on earth, he would receive all the 144,000 from 21 centuries of the preaching of the gospel. They're going to be with him. And this is a thousand years in advance. God saying it's going to happen. You will break them with a rod of iron. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. So here in Psalm 2, we're saying that even the rulers who try to stop Jesus and the church, they will be annihilated. And the judgment on the rulers of the world we'll talk about next week in the remaining verses of chapter 14. But here, it's a reminder to all those who are involved, even in the political process this week, Republicans and Democrats, you may have won something, but in the end, you violate the standards of God and he will break you no matter what you win on earth. That's Psalm 2. Therefore, what should I do because of this threat? Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Repent from your sin and come to Christ, both rulers and, and the people. So when you come to Psalm or to Revelation 14, it's a fulfillment, a thousand year promise that we first saw in Psalm chapter two, that God knows how to get his people home. Now, what we want to do is to find out who these people are because we said last week that they are, they're marked, their name is marked on uh, the, the father's name is marked on their foreheads. So you got the, mar- the lamb. You get the lamb is on your life. Is marked. You're marked in heaven with a mark of the lamb. You're marked in heaven with something from the father. And so all of us want to be in Zionist. And now you're saying, what is the mark? What's the mark of a redeemed person? What is the mark of a disciple? How can I know that I've been marked by Jesus Christ, and I'll be there standing on Mount Zion. Well, Revelation 14 was written to tell us what are the marks of a Christian. We saw them last week. We said a Christian is a God-applauding, Christ-following, purity-seeking, truth-speaking, redeemed human. So the first thing that we know about what a believer looks like, what's the mark of a disciple, is a Christian lives to celebrate God. And that is described in verse two. I heard a sound from heaven like the rushing waters, like a roar, and they sang a new song before the throne. A little repeat from last week, but I think you'll appreciate it. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. If you love music, heaven is the place to be. Heaven is a place of singing. Hell is a place of screaming. You want to be in heaven. And all of you are gonna be able to sing so wonderfully. We saw on the marquee in front of the auditorium yesterday, as Lisa and I were riding by there, that Zach Williams, who does an unbelievable version of Go Tell It on Mountain, I told Lisa, it wouldn't do me well for my ego, but I wish I sang like Zach Williams. I am in heaven, but even better. 
I'll have new capacities, plus I'll have a new understanding of God's love because this is the fuel that causes us to sing forever. We're finally going to grasp what it means to be loved by the Lamb, Jesus, and His Father and to be invited to come to heaven. And we're going to sing of that love forever. A few years ago, my wife was a kindergarten teacher. I tell people now, I, I introduce this, I hope you've, I'd like for you to meet my new wife because she's retired. She acts new. <laughs> she acts new in the morning when she should be at school. And there's a new piece. I appreciate her 30 years that preceded that. But when she was a kindergarten teacher, her assistant was named Miss Barry. And they had this little boy that was just overwhelmed with the love that he felt in a kindergarten classroom by those two teachers. And so he wrote a song about how great it was to be loved by these two women. I'd like to share it with you. The lyrics are pretty easy to pick up on. You got it? That's it. (laughs) Miss Barry and Miss Smith, they love me and I love them. That's what fuels our endless singing in heaven is for the first time in our life, we're not going to be looking at our stocks. We're not going to be looking at our business. We're not going to be wondering how to raise our families. We're going to first time in our life understand how great God's love is for us and it will produce endless delight in singing. Nobody told that little boy to sing. He did it because he understood how loved he was. You know, one of the things that separates Christianity from all the religions of the world is we are a singing people. You won't find songs of celebration in a Hindu temple or a Muslim, a mosque, or a gathering place for Buddhist priests. There is no singing because there is no celebration that I have been rescued from my sin because all of these religions, they're still trying to be rescued from their sin through their good works. We sing because Jesus Christ has shed his blood. He's the lamb that sacrificed his blood for the redemption of our lives. We are a singing people. We don't sing sad songs about our girlfriend who left us in a honking tonk in Nashville. (laughs) We don't sing silly songs about our love for beer and barbecue. We don't sing songs, rah-rah songs about how strong we are, that we're going to make it through the hard times. We sing songs about a Redeemer who loved us at our worst and weakest. Nothing thrills the Christian's heart like being able to express their gratitude to God by saying thank you in a song. The second characteristic of those who are marked as redeemed people are we actually follow, we follow the king that we love. Follow. Look at this. Revelation 14, 4, they follow the lamb wherever he goes. Every time somebody greets you and welcomes you on a Sunday morning, after the first song, they normally throw in their mission statement that says, We desire to help you applaud God, follow Christ, and live on mission. 
And you have to know that to get into heaven. If you miss that. But we intend, just kidding. We chose that middle phrase, follow Christ, because we didn't want to put the word believe. Because we wanted to say, we want to introduce you to a Christ that you believe in enough that you follow. In a few weeks, we're going to baptize several people down front and a portable baptismal, and a lot of times we do it out at Lake Cooley. You probably have been to some of those, and everybody who's baptized wears a shirt that's called and with the name follower because we want to teach these young people it's not believing. It's a belief that leads to following. If you're a redeemed person, you are a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be baptized. That's what it means to believe. You follow Jesus, you follow a person. Remember how Jesus called his first disciples? Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake, Mark 2. As he walked along, he saw Levi, or Matthew, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. That's how Jesus invites people to become his disciples. Follow me. Mere belief doesn't do it. Belief doesn't cause you to enter into a relationship. Belief doesn't say, I have declared Jesus to be the Lord and master and king of my life. Belief just means I believe. Not necessarily I've made a decision to follow. Every time Jesus called someone, in essence, he found somebody, they were walking in the wrong direction. And Jesus said, I'm walking in that direction. Follow me. And they turned around. That's what discipleship Christianity is. Turning around and following a person named Jesus. Jesus always talked in terms of like that. He would tell people, come eat, drink. These were all words that he wanted to make sure they understood more than believing because there were a lot of people in the first century that believed a lot of dead things. Dead, lifeless, religious things. And he said, no, come and taste, come and see. And then the climax of all of his invitations was follow me. None better than when he went to the apostle Peter and called him to be a disciple. You remember that day that it happened in Luke chapter five. Peter was a fisherman, probably a lot more successful than I've ever been on a lake. But that night he was unsuccessful and was exhausted from no fish after a night of fishing. And Jesus said, hey, fisherman, one more time, cast your net out and there could not have been anybody more reluctant in all of the world than Peter to go fishing one more time. But he told Jesus, I'll give it a, a shot. But he was so reluctant. I could tell you the rest of the story, but I like how the story is told in the video series, The Chosen. Let's just watch it together. One more time. Throw out your nets.
God, yes. I am. Depart from me. I am a sinful man. You don't know who I am and the things I've done. Don't be afraid, Simon. What do you want from me? Anything you ask, I will do. Follow me. That's Christianity. It's following Jesus. And you know how the story really, the written ending, Peter and his brother, John, they pulled their boats up on the shore and they left everything and followed Jesus. Not believe. They did believe he was Messiah, but they followed him. This city, this nation, is filled with a lot of people who believe in Jesus but will not be on Mount Zion. They will not be in the New Jerusalem. They'll not be in heaven because they only believe that they do not follow. Somewhere along the way, maybe it was a youth minister, maybe it was a pastor like myself, sadly made the mistake of telling somebody that you could believe only without following. It is not true, it's not biblical. And these people that prayed this prayer that somebody said you can pray once in your life, not follow, but simply believe the words. They, now they are demonstrating with their life that they're, they're not following a savior. They're following their own flesh. They're following the world. They're not following a savior. If you were not following Jesus, you were not a follower of Jesus. The third characteristic of those who are disciples, those who are redeemed, is they walk diligently in the pursuit of purity and holiness. John describes this in an unusual way in verse 3 and 4. Revelation 14, no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women. They remained virgins. I've told you repeatedly that Revelation is filled with symbols and this is another example of a symbol. So we have to ask the question, why did John use this phrase, the symbol of virginity, to talk about discipleship? Because we know from the Bible's love of family and men and women coming together to form families like we saw on stage today. This is, this is not a pro, this is not an anti-sex call to celibacy. This is a call to purity. So why now would he use the call to virginity in this context? And I think the, you really can't understand that this particular thing in chapter 14 until you, until you remember what happened before Chapters 12 and 13 of Revelation, there's a war that's declared against the church. The dragon and the beast and the false prophet, the unholy alliance of Satan and his two beastly allies wage war against the church, trying to persuade the church to sink into immorality, to engage in the preoccupation of the culture with sex and moral perversion 
And so then when you come to Revelation chapter 14, you see that they have remained pure. In the middle of a war, they remained pure. If you study the Old Testament, when Israel's soldiers went to war, they were told to keep the camp clean, stay focused on the war, including abstaining from sex. And you remember in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 11, where King David invited a soldier back from the battlefield and said, sleep with your wife tonight, Uriah. And Uriah said, how could I do that? I would never do such a thing because my men are at war. I think this is all that's going on in John's mind in Revelation 14. There's a war. Whenever a culture begins to depart from God, it will step into massive sexual perversion. The way that you know that a nation is under the judgment of God is the depth of sexual perversion to which it goes. And here in Revelation 14, we see those who follow the Lamb do not follow the ways of the world. And they walk away from the call of the world to spend their life in sexual fantasies that are outside of the will of God. So these are who are gathered on Zion are those who have resisted the culture's call. I think there may be another reason that John uses this concept of moral sexual purity. And it may be because throughout the book of Revelation, everything is heading toward a massive end in chapter 22 of a big, beautiful wedding. The whole purpose of the book is to talk about the wedding to come between the church and Jesus. And as you all know, there's nothing more important in most cultures than what a bride chooses to wear on her wedding day. And I think this is what John is getting at. They stayed pure for the wedding day. This is how John says it at the end of the book. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And one of the seven angels said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. So there on Mount Zion, you have the lamb and you have his bride, the church. And the reason why the church is pure in Revelation 14 is they're waiting. They want to present their life as beautiful to the lamb that they're about to see when their life is over. Final characteristic of those who are redeemed, final mark of a Christian, who lives and dies for the truth. Revelation 14 says about these who were on Mount Zion in heaven. No lie was found in their mouths, and they are blameless. When the Bible uses the word blameless in this context, it's not talking about perfection. It's talking about motive. Why do you speak? If you were to ask me this morning, what is the motive that I would spend 30 plus hours easily 
preparing for this message on this complex five verses of the Bible, I can tell you, I've already settled that on the front end. My motive is so that you will love God and go to heaven. My motive is not, there's no way I can use this to manipulate you and deceive. If I wanted to manipulate you and deceive you, I might preach on something that tickles your ears, easy to understand for your mind, full of all sorts of jokes, doesn't call you to sexual purity. But I'm blameless in the sense that my motive is pure. I want you to know and love Christ. That's what. So therefore, I'm going to tell the truth. I'm not going to lie to you just so you'll keep coming back. And I think that's what John means. If you look at this tension in chapter 14, chapter 14 are the truth tellers. And then prior to that, we were introduced to one who was called He was a helper of the dragon. He's called the false prophet, really in chapter 16, but we first got to know him in chapter 16. He's an ally of Satan, and he's called the false prophet because all he does is pull people away from God by telling them lies. That's why he's called the false prophet. So you have this tension. Those who are, they've made it to heaven versus the deceiver on earth and the difference in the two is one tells lies and one tells, one tells lies about Christ, one tells the truth about Christ. Don't you remember when Jesus in his earthly ministry in John chapter 8 said, Satan is a liar from the beginning and all he does is lie? Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and all I do is tell the truth. And so those who follow Jesus all the way to Mount Zion, the new Jerusalem heaven, are those who tell the truth about Jesus. In this kind of culture, it is so easy to become so weary from the propaganda arm of the evil one that the lies that are repeated over and over again can so weary the church. I have known believers that once professed to love the truth about Jesus and no longer do because the culture has wearied them and they've become frightened of taking a stand for the truth to the point they said, I no longer want to be a follower of the Lamb. To resist the lies of Satan in this culture is costly. You're going to be labeled with one of the names that you hear. You're going to be rejected. It might be a loss of your reputation. It may be your church doesn't grow. You lose your job or you lose your life. It's amazing. People are preaching this message around the world today and they died for it because they told the truth. You remember when Jesus was taken on the last night of his earthly life before the mock trial and the Sanhedrin gathered around him and the chief priest said, tell us, are you the son of God? All Jesus had to do was say no and he lives. But instead he said, yes, I am. And you will see the son of man coming from heaven with all the angels in glory. And it cost him his life to tell the truth. So all of these believers in Revelation 14 are truth tellers because they follow a lamb who told the truth. I see Dan Yako and in the back, no man has ever blessed the church more by taking us through a book of the Bible like he did by taking us through First Peter. I know he loves the verse I'm about to share. 
But this is why this verse I'm about to share from 1 Peter, the very disciple that you saw throw his net out in exhaustion, followed Christ all the way to his own cross where he was crucified upside down and told the truth about Jesus to the Roman Empire until his last breath. And Peter is in heaven now on Mount Zion in glory because he told the truth, because he followed one who told the truth. And this is how Peter wrote among the last words of his life to a suffering church. 1 Peter 2, 21, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate when he suffered. He made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.